Connection is a podcast created by Free Press, an advocacy group fighting for your rights to communicate and connect. Each episode, we'll talk about what's happening in the world of media, technology, and journalism, and what we think is next. Learn more at freepress.net. Today's episode features audio from a panel discussion created by Free Press staff members titled Owning Our Stories. This panel was presented at the Facing Race Conference in Detroit, Michigan in 2018. The goal of this discussion was to collaboratively dream a better future, while also naming and analyzing how systemic racism in the media has historically resulted in dangerous political narratives that harm communities of color. This discussion included hearty audience feedback, so forgive us in advance for slight audio difficulties during the audience response portion, but you'll want to listen closely to this amazing community-centered discussion. The views and opinions expressed on today's episode are not necessarily those of free press. All right. Well, good afternoon. How's everybody doing? Doing well. Good, good. Good to hear your voices, see your faces. Um, My name is Colette Watson, and I work at Free Press. Um, Not Detroit Free Press. (laughs) Giving, you know, honor or credence to where we are. But we actually, Free Press, um, we are an advocacy group located in Washington, D.C. We've been around for about 15 years working to fight for rights to communicate and connect. So, um, you know, kind of that is where I roam with a lot of really, really wonderful and intelligent people, some of whom are in the room with me today, my colleague Joe Torres, um, O'Neill Price, Lucia Martinez here on the front row, Manolia works with us as well. Manolia, I never pronounced your last name correctly. Shantin? Okay, Manolia Shantin. So we just want to first of all welcome each of you into the space and thank you so much for being here today to talk about Kerner at 50. So uh, do I have any folks in the room with familiarity with the Kerner Report, the Kerner Commission? Can I see by show of hands? Okay. Excellent, excellent. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, uh, Free Press, along with A Color of Change, represented here by the wonderful Randy Collins-Dexter, and we'll meet everyone on the panel in just a moment, but along with Color of Change and other organizations, we have been working for the last year to highlight the 50th anniversary of the Kerner Commission Report. Right, and now what is that? Well, uh, in 1968, following the uprisings across the country, Detroit, Newark, et cetera, uh, then President Lyndon Johnson decided we need to figure out what caused these uprisings, because we have no idea. <laughs> but he appointed this commission to, to study what, was, what were the causes of this, these uprisings, this tension, and the commission very courageously came back uh, with some truths, right, about what various uh, systemic dynamics were, including the fact that media has been and had been a primary author of very destructive narratives within um, and as its own system of oppression. So when that report came back, you know, and, and Joe and Brandy and, and, and Resma, um, correct me if I'm misrepresenting here, but you know, President Johnson was surprised at those findings, and actually they didn't even publish the report initially. Um, and so part of the narrative for me that is important when we talk about the current commission is the fact that we have to continue to highlight it 
continue to make it known, and they'll also continue to understand and study what the report found um, in the context of that time and then in the context of today. So we are going to talk a little bit about the story of race and the media, um, what's in the Kerner Report, and where we are now, and of course, dreaming and visioning of where we want to be. Um, so just before we get into this conversation, I want to let you know a couple housekeeping notes. Um, we are going to very much keep this conversation kind of organic um, and flowing between the panelists and you. And so there are going to be plenty of opportunities for you to voice your perspective and to ask questions, and we just want to keep the space um, welcoming to that. I also want to mention that our hashtag today is uh, owning our stories and also Kerner at 50. But um, our primary hashtag is owning our stories. So we want to encourage you to also join in the conversation online so that we can usher into the space, keep using church words, so that we can bring into the space people who are not necessarily physically present with us. Um, and then also we want to make sure that it's understood that we are recording today. And um, if you do have concerns about that, let us know. But we are planning on using some of the audio from today as a podcast episode to continue to keep the conversation going. And when I say the conversation, I'm really referring to really beautiful and broad multimedia work that's been going on over the past year. If you look, uh, if you search that hashtag, Owning Our Stories, you'll find um, artwork that's been created, um, various essays, research that's been done, really being led by Joseph Torres and Manole Charlotte. So please you know, join us in the conversation today, owning our stories, and understand that it's part of ongoing work and that we hope you'll sign up to be a part of it. How can you do that? There is a sign-up sheet that is being passed around. I think my colleague O'Neill has it actually in the back row there, and the sheet is going to make its way forward, and that will be the way that we can stay in community with you. I've been talking a long time, so I'm going to be quiet, um, and I'm going to pass it along to our panelists, to our conversation members. Um, and first of all, just let you know a little bit more about who they are. So to my right, Randy Collins-Dexter serves as Media Justice Director. I know, sort of. <laughs> I'll let Brandy correct me, uh, but at Color of Change. Let's welcome Brandy. And just next to Brandy, my colleague Joseph Torres is Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement at Free Press. And finally, we have Resma Menachem, who is who has appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Show and Dr. Phil and just all these wonderful things, and is in community um, practicing therapy and also as healing around the work of um, healing trauma, and is just doing a lot of things, especially regarding cultural somatics in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So Resma Menachem. So before we get into our conversation, we want to hear from you first. And I'd like to uh, take a moment to ask you a question as the audience. Um, could, is there anyone who's willing to raise a hand and share with us what brought you here today? Mm. So you were scrolling through the app, and you saw titles and things and descriptions. Um, so what compelled you to join us today? Uh, so. All we have is story. The power of story is everything. Everything about us that's given is a story. That's one of the things that separates us from Africans. We have a 
story. And so um, I knew a little bit about the Carter Report um, from my uh, teenage years. And I never heard the word again until today. So I was like, oh, yeah, the Carter Report. <laughs> what happened to that? Yeah. You know? So um, um, that, that's what brought me here to, to this session. That's what you meant, right? Not the book job. <laughs> also, I'm an author and writer, so I love the story, so tell us. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And uh, I want to ask one more question. Um, in that frame of what brought you here today, I'm sure for many of you, um, it, it also includes sort of this idea of media and its impact. Is there anyone that kind of will voice for us how you feel media, this idea of media, especially mass media, has impacted your life or your community um, and the way of helping us to continue to unearth why folks are in the room today. And if you could you maybe come a little closer because I just realized that I the mic is there you go. Um, I think media is so good at sharing and spreading all of the negative without addressing any of the good things that happen in all of our communities. Absolutely.
But as an actor starting out, when I would do TV or film or whatever, it was always a given that when you got on set, I mean, everybody was white. It was mostly white men. People behind the scenes who were making the decisions, who were choosing how we looked and what we said and how we said it. Just this week, uh, I did an episode of, I'm not trying to push myself, sure. an episode of Gold for CBS. And I walked in, and they were like a lot of black folks, you know. Uh, and, and they were in not necessarily the real positions of being behind the camera or directing or even casting, but they were, they were, you know, in the room. And I stopped, and I actually went to each one and said, oh, my God, it's so great to see you here. What do you want to do? You want to direct? You want to keep doing it? And I, I've always done that, but now it's, it's getting a little bit more. But I say all this in, in, in this, in that I think we have to be the decision makers. We have to be the ones who write the stories, to direct the stories, and to produce the stories. And we hear that all the time. We know the five people who are doing it now, uh, but we need 100,000 more. Mm. Um, and that's the only way I see the narrative changing, is if we are in charge of in charge of the narrative. And when there is an isolated, negative situation, and they can't find boards, they can't stack, they just burn the bad things on their Absolutely. It's so true. Thank you all so much for sharing. You know, I'm so glad that you mentioned that uh, we need more, right? Uh, because that is actually at the heart of what we're doing here today and going forward, which really Manolia can speak to better than I can, and I may call on you a little bit later, sis. The fact that this conversation is a part of an ongoing effort for us to build um, those that, that, uh, that community of resistance when it comes to media, um, as media makers, as people in relationship with one another. But I just want to thank each of you so much for your comments. I heard a couple of themes bubbling up. Um, I heard, you know, the intentional, the intentionality of the misinformation, um, ownership of our narratives, um, the things that are in our communities and generative and happening and there, you know, in existence, but maybe not having that light shined on them. And even when you mentioned that things are not that much different, so powerful when you talk about 50 years later, uh, the connective threads between what we're seeing in this time, what we saw at that time. So I want to come to you, Brandy Collins Dexter. Because I'm going to ask you, you know, um, what do you feel are the parallels between 1968 and now? And so much is happening right now from the election cycle that we've just witnessed to just every day, the things. Uh, let me give you back the microphone and ask you to share your perspective. Thank you, everyone. Um, so I'm going to touch on where we were as a country around the time the Kerner Report was written and where we are now. And I definitely want to keep things organic, but to be honest, I'm like a semi-organic kind of person, so like I have certain comments. But I'm going to try to make intense, meaningful eye contact with everybody. <laughs> um, so as I was thinking about my my comments for today, I kind of I came across this quote from LBJ um, that was sort of striking to me. And the quote is, I can think of nothing more dangerous, more divisive, or more self-destructive than the effort to prey on what is called white backlash. I thought it was a mistake to pump this issue up in the 1964 campaign, and I do not think it served the purpose of those who did. I think it is dangerous because it threatens to vest power in the hands of second-rate men 
whose only qualifications is their ability to pander to another man's fears. I think it divides this nation at a very critical time, and therefore it weakens us as a united country. Now, I'm not really, I think that there's a lot of sanitizing of LBJ, and I'm not fully here for that, but I do find it striking that LBJ would use these kind of words, sorry, Lyndon B. Johnson, would use these kind of words and language that we haven't heard from like a sitting president, including President Obama, and that he's saying these things in 1966. And he's actually saying them in the run-up to the 1966 midterms. Um, despite those words, those midterms would not go well for Democrats. The Republican Party would pick up several seats, and it marked the resurgence of explicit dog whistle politics as a means to torpedo the vehicles that have been used by black people to make political gains. So I want to take you a little bit back to 1967 at the time this commission is brought together. So LBJ has kind of just taken a beating in the midterms. Vietnam War is happening. You're having protests at colleges like Howard University. MLK has publicly denounced um, the Vietnam War, uh, less than a year later, he would be assassinated. And one of the most popular athletes in the country, Muhammad Ali, is under attack for his political and religious beliefs. Ronald Reagan has just become the governor of California after, for years, leading an anti-communist witch hunt in Hollywood that was explicitly used to neutralize actors like Paul Robeson, mm -hmm. who were involved in the civil rights movement. And despite galvanizing around this political superstar who is literally an actor, his base still has this view of Hollywood as interlopers that are looking to undermine good American values. There's civil unrest happening in places like Detroit, Flint, and Watts. There's a Puerto Rican uprising in Chicago. Loving v. Virginia has just happened, um, which stops the prohibition of interracial marriage. And while it's an, obviously an important ruling, it also plays into white male fears that virile black men who are being uplifted in this time like Muhammad Ali, Wilt Chamberlain, Sidney Poitier, Jimi Hendrix, et cetera, are coming to steal the white women. You've got the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and soon to come, the Fair Housing Act. There are thousands of new black voters. The economic wage gap is closing as income for black families have nearly doubled. And between 1960 and 1980, even though um, POC-owned personal service businesses have decreased, um, people of color owned Finance, insurance, and real estate businesses have increased by 185%. Business services have increased by 175%. And wholesale industries have increased by 112%. These businesses hold a critical role in ensuring that jobs, resources, and money flow into communities and civil rights movements and also create physical safe spaces for people to meet and organize. Black people are organizing for power at auto plants in places like Michigan and California. And in Michigan or in Detroit, nearly half of union auto workers in Detroit around this time are black. There's a rising tide of white fear that the economic and social apartheid that has been constructed in this country is under attack. But much of that is not really being examined by mainstream media. There's a lot of mythology and sort of self-grandizing by the media around their role in winning the civil rights battles of the 60s. And indeed, there's an important role that I don't want to ignore. But the truth is that the struggles and fights of the movement were woefully undercovered outside of black media. And the eventual coverage was driven less by a moral obligation to black people and more by a combination of self-preservation and it, if it bleeds, it leads sort of mentality. We had to literally bleed for our trauma to be seen. So at this point in history, there's also a deep mistrust by white Southerners of national reporters. Organizers have become masters of self-promotion, utilizing black-owned media and public stunts and protests to ensure that despite a reluctance by mainstream media, they could not be denied. 
The New York Times basically does not cover the Montgomery bus boycotts. They relied on wire service for copy for months. And their beat reporter, who's charged primarily with covering the South during that time, only releases two stories about it. National media has like run their hands about covering protests, fearing that they would lose Southern affiliates. Eventually, they can't ignore it, but find that they are iced out and threatened by white people in the community. Dan Rather talks about covering the attempted enrollment of a black student in University of Mississippi in 1962, and he reports seeing a sign at a motel that read, no dogs, niggers, or reporters. National outlets had cute and fun names. NBC was called the Nigger Broadcasting Company. CBS was called the Communist Broadcasting System. And ABC was called the Asshole Broadcasting Company. So this is like the world in which the Kerner Commission comes to fruition. And in 1968, the commission warns that our nation is moving towards two societies, one black and one white, separate and unequal, and that the media needed to accept and correct its unfortunate role in exacerbating that schism. So that's what's happening at that time. And so you fast forward to now and things still feel familiar, right? We still, in many ways, we still have an actor that's branded as a political superstar um, whose followers reject media in Hollywood. There's still a war that serves as a backdrop for our everyday lives. There are things that have, there are some noted difference. Um, kind of said plainly, the bottom in many ways has fallen out for black workers. The earning wage gap between black and white men, which began narrowing in the 1940s, has stopped by the mid-70s. And it's not a coincidence that this is the last time, this also marks the last time that a monopoly was broke up in the US. Since the wage gap has widened, um, it currently is as wide today as it was in the 1950s. And even accounting for class, black men are more likely to become poor than stay wealthy in their own adult households. While black women-owned businesses have grown 300% in the internet age, representing the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs, thanks in part to net neutrality, this only tells part of the story. Today, um, even though in internet businesses are able to be started free from barriers presented to building brick and mortar businesses, it has also marked the collapse of physical businesses and the financial institutions that have anchored black communities. While 60 black owned banks existed in the 80s, today little over 20, little under 20 remain. While 50 black owned insurance companies operate in the 80s, there's only two left today. And in an era of unprecedented media consolidation, 90% of media is owned by six companies. Black-owned media, which has long been this crucial hub for black organizing, has suffered the most. Um, today, black people own less than 1% of all television media properties and less than 2% of, of radio. Monopolies, which were once this kind of like dirty word, now rule the day. With the latest oil and railroad barons now being the CEOs and venture capitalists that run Silicon Valley. The platforms that have been crucial to the 21st century iteration of the civil rights movement um, have have found ways to work around civil rights laws to replicate models of housing, finance, and employment discrimination. They track and swallow up Pac-Man's style any potential alternatives. And, consol and consolidated media run by conservative families create an echo chamber for narratives and tropes that are used to reinforce white fears. Obvious voter suppression efforts across the country still go uncovered. We've heard a lot about Georgia and Florida, but some of the things that were ignored were things like tribal IDs not being accepted in Standing Rock, um, voters wrongly being asked for ID in Missouri, 300,000 inactive voters in Alabama, ballot scanners not working in North Carolina, and polling sites open late in Arizona and Indiana. And again, many of these things went under or unreported. Headlines and pundits frame the Georgia governor's election around Abrams unwillingness to concede instead of highlighting the truth that while she may still force a runoff, 
were it not for the 700,000 votes purged by Kim and other attempts to fix the election, she probably would have won outright. And while we talk about misinformation, news outlets still create false equivalencies around people like Maxine Waters, who advocates for protests and speaking out against injustice, and the long line of GOP candidates and leaders who have intentionally used anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, and anti-immigrant and anti-black rhetoric to stir up the most violent members of their base. And you have an administration that's cues from Russia in terms of crushing media access and press power. So we're still, very much in a fight and struggle to own our own stories and narratives. I know there's a lot more to be shared, so I'll pause there, but wanted to, to offer that sort of historical and current context. Mm. Thank you so much, Brandy. Wow. <laughs> wow, right? <laughs> Thank you, please. I'm with you. I want. I want that. You know. Um, was that talking to the mic? Okay. Um, so I want to talk. I'm gonna. I'm gonna talk about that. But I want to say like what I've been up to and uh, work with Brandy and other media makers of color the whole year and while we're here talking about Kerner. Um, I'm a former journalist. Um, I also worked for the National Association of Hispanic Journalists for a lot of years before I started working at Free Press. I am. Um, I'm also a co-author of a book. Uh, with Juan Gonzalez on the history of racism in the media, but news for all the people. And and I am, um, I've been learning a lot about media over the past 15 years. Um, when I worked at the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, uh, there was all this consolidation happening in the media system uh, after the 1996 Telecom Act, which allowed for massive consolidation of the radio and television industry. And, Michael Powell was the chairman of the FCC, Colin Powell's son, mm -hmm. and he just wanted to deregulate everything. He wanted one company to own, uh, and say, the bigger markets, the newspaper, three TV stations, eight radio stations, and the cable franchise, all under one company. And we knew as Latino journalists and for people of color in our communities, this was not a good thing. First of all, journalists can get laid off, right? But the content is going to continue to harm our community. And we started to try to inform journalists about this because this because a lot of media makers, and I'll say journalists, I'll stick with journalists for now, right? 
while they might work in the industry, they have no idea about the system that they work for, right? It, the media system is like any other system in this country. It wasn't created to help us. It was created to control us and to harm us. The media system is no different. Now, there's, you know, criminal justice system, housing, bank, whatever the system is, is not meant to help us. Mm -hmm. um, it's about narrative, right? Narrative is about power. Right, it's about power. Who has the ability to control stories? Someone say fake news. We are the people of color. Our original, uh, we are the target, the original target of fake news in this country. You know, everything they've been, um, you know, what they've been reporting about us for a long time has been a deliberate lie to demonize our communities in order to control us, in order to allow these all these institutions that they established to exist in the enslavement, lynching mass incarceration, uh, annexation of the Southwest. They all needed a narrative to order to support a policy change uh, uh, that, that harms us. And the media owners back in the day, and to this day, I, I, uh, are there to uphold a white racial hierarchy. And a lot of these media companies, particularly newspapers, play direct roles in, in violence against people of color, right? So we look today and we see like, a, um, that's Moonbez saying that Donald Trump may be bad for uh, America, but great, CB, uh, great for CBS. Or, yeah. or, or, or the guy who runs CNN, Zucker, saying, you know, well, we don't have Trump on the television, uh, people turn their channels. What you're saying is racism is good for business. And racism is good for business for a lot of folks, right? And a lot of people make a lot of money off racism, including these, these companies. So for me, I started to get into policy, right? The idea that we don't own and control anything. We, we talk about, we need to diversify newsrooms. We need to get more people of color in all these places creating. But at the end of the day, the greatest job promotion is to actually own, is to actually own the infrastructure, to own the radio station. There was a, a person um, a few years ago, Brandy said that like a few years ago, we wrote a story that there was no black owners, television station owners in this country. And we found out there was actually one, but he didn't want people to know he was black owned because the racism that would come with the advertising market. So he didn't, when he, the, the information had to get to the FCC, he didn't mark that he was black, right? Because otherwise he's going to be like, they're going to say, we're gonna, uh, he couldn't get as much money in ad revenue, right? So it's policy. And, and, and throughout the history of media, there's always been decisions made by the government about who, uh, do we allow the greatest number of voices to participate in, 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 in owning things and uh, uh, so they have their voices heard, or do you concentrate control in the hands of a few? And ever since the creation of the telegraph, then uh, radio, and then television, and cable, and now the fight over the internet has always been concentration power in the hands of a few companies. Um, the fight over net neutrality right now is that fight, right? Is that fight uh, to make sure that uh, this platform is open for as many voices as possible to be able to speak without these telecom companies picking winners and losers. It's the lowest barrier of entry for our community to have a voice, right? So uh, we don't have the wealth to buy radio and TV stations uh, because of the concentration. So. With that said, uh, last year, we, we were fortunate enough to, uh, about uh, 12 of us got together, uh, had Adrian Lee Brown was facilitated this conversation we had in the uh, media makers of color often use, we often use our ability to tell stories on, about injustices happening in different, different, in different places, in different movements, whether it's immigration or um, criminal justice, but we often don't tell the story of racism in, in the media system itself. How do we tell the story of race in our media 
So folks understand like there is a structure there, there were decisions made, there is a there is a system that can be changed, you know, and that needs to be advocated for. Because I, I just personally believe it's going to be hard. It's hard to fight for racial justice uh, if you can't tell your own story, right? And so with that, with the current, I, I just want to step back. The current commission report. Um, I just want to read a few things they were saying back then, right? And, and the recognition of the black community of what was really going down, right? And and and, um, and also what was happening at the time. So when Kerner came out, as Brandon was saying, the civil rights movement was happening. It was affecting all all of society, including the media industry, right? In in the 1960 in the 1960s, uh, black activists in Jackson, Mississippi, were trying to get a station license overturned because it was run by a white supremacist. And uh, Mega Evers got on the air trying to uh, to say that he wanted airtime to be able to come back because they were they were advocating for a second to continue to, to have Mississippi segregated. But at the time, uh, people didn't have standing to challenge a broadcast license. But the residents of Jackson, Mississippi, won in court, and for the first time ever in 1966, U.S. citizens won the right to challenge broadcast licenses. Mm. So in the by the early 1970s, all across this country, black in brown communities were challenging the broadcast license everywhere. There was an assault on the, um, the broadcast industry from our communities. We talk about movements. There was a large movement in local communities all across the country. There was over 350 broadcast licenses within a two-year period. And because of the challenge of the rules back then, they were able to get broadcasters to sign agreements with the local community uh, to increase the number of people of color in newsrooms, to start programs, those local public affairs programs in those communities mm -hmm. that a lot of them still exist. Some of the anchors that are still on the air to this day in your local communities were, are there because of their communities were fighting for them. So I kind of, so, so I, I was on a panel a few years ago with John Quinones, and he said the reason he got his first job in radio in 1969 was because Chicanos in San Antonio <coughs> challenged the broadcast licenses, and that's how he got on the air. Mm -hmm. so, so what can we do today to hold those in power and accountable, but also how can we change the rules? As Rashad Robin was saying, why can't we own radio and TV stations? Now we have what's going on with online, these platforms. A lot of people think because we have social media um, that our voices are free, um, we're on someone else's platform, you know, uh, that we don't control. And those platforms are being <laughs> used to target us, not only surveillance, but with hate, right? So let me just read a couple of quotes and then I'm going to turn it over. This is the current commission, right? So it said, um, it said here, one of my favorite, right? There's, uh, that I was, when you read the report, you're surprised they actually had this language. They actually were telling these truths, as, was, as uh, Colette was saying. Uh, they were saying like that the black community believed that the media were instruments of a white power st structure, that these white interests guide the entire white community, from your journalists, friends, and neighbors to city officials, police officers, and department store owners. Publishers and editors of not white reporters supported and defended these interests with enthusiasm and dedication. So the, the, there was an understanding that uh, the media was there to support a white power structure. And I still think to this day, uh, the dominant media uh, uh, companies and the dominant media reporters are still there to uphold that. And the one last thing I'm gonna read is for, it's one of my favorite quotes that kind of, uh, to me, the media steps in on behalf of people of color at times when there's violence, because they don't want to see the violence, right? At times, right? But what they don't, so they say stop, you know, um, taking children away, you know, uh, kidnapping children away from their parents or, or, or stuff like that. But they're not really for inequity, they're not really for equity and justice. Mm -hmm. They're not trying to change the fundamental things that's happening in our society or reporting on it. So this was, uh, if I get this quote, it's a little bit of a long quote, but it was one of my favorite quotes from uh, 
uh, Dr. King, and I'm looking for it. Should have had it tied up. All right. So in Dr. King's last book in 1967, where do we go from here? He was talking about like after uh, after Selma and all that 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 the white community didn't want to see black folks getting getting beat up and killed, but they weren't for for they were for uh, equity. So here here's what he wrote. For the vast majority of white Americans, the past decade, the first phase of the struggle, has been the struggle to treat the Negro with a degree of decency and not of equality. White America was ready to demand that the Negro should be spared the last, the, the, the lash of brutality and cost degradation, but it had never been truly committed to helping him out of poverty, exploitation, or all forms of discrimination. The, the outraged white citizen had been sincere when he snatched the whips from the Southern sheriffs and forbade them from cruelties. But when this was in a degree accomplished, the emotions that had momentarily inflamed them melted away. White Americans left the Negro on the ground and in devastating numbers walked off with the aggressor. It appeared the white segregationists and the ordinary white citizen had more in common with one another than, than, than either of them had with the Negro. When Negroes looked at the second phase, the realization of equality, they found that many of their white allies had quietly disappeared. The Negroes of America had taken the president, the press, and the pulpit at their word when they spoke of broad terms of freedom and justice. But that absence of brutality and unrenegated un evil is not the presence of justice. The state murder is not the same thing as the ordained brotherhood. Mm. The word was broken and the free running expectation of Negro crashing to the stone wall of white resistance. The result was havoc. To me, the media has never been for, our, for, for equity for people of color. They, 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 they may speak up when there's brutality against our communities, but that's as far as they go. And this is why we have to change the rules. This is why we, people of color, we have to transform the system. We have to be able to own and control our own stories. And I think for media makers of color, we have to unveil, we have to make what's invisible, visible to people how the system and structure works. So I'll stop there. Okay. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, you know, I want to focus in on that point that you made there so eloquently regarding ownership um, as the, the way to truly achieve that just media, ownership of our narratives, ownership of infrastructure. Because I know that, Resna, in your case, you have actually done a lot of different things, um, even within your practice um, of, of uh, addressing trauma, but you've done a lot in terms of media and been able to create and I think change the rules in your own way in the way that you have created and published media. So if you don't mind telling us a little bit about that and also you know, what's on your mind as you're listening to these points. Absolutely. Um, it's always good for me to go behind two brilliant people because <laughs> what ends up happening is, is that the ideas that I thought that came up from me myself actually get surfaced by other people, and it makes me not be so selfish or think that I have all the answers, right? And it, it really does bring home the idea of community and community knowledge. And so one of the first things I always do before I start talking is I always want to acknowledge that our feet right now is on native ground, and that something happened to those people and to our people. And a lot of times when we're talking we just move on and we forget that things have happened to people and continue to happen to people. And one of the, in, in, in that the idea of genocide, land theft, and enslavement 
are bedrocks of this country. These, these things are discriminatory. And it gave way to racist ideas that were used to reinforce continuing to commit genocide, land theft, and enslavement, right? And those things then gave way to hatred and ignorance. And so when Brother Joe asked me to be part of this, one of the things that I thought about is, in terms of institutions, is that the very foundation of the media was designed to reinforce those racist ideas that certain people were human and certain people were not. Certain people were of a, remember the race question in this country started off as a species question first. Right? A species idea. Are they human or are they so derivative of human? Right, and what and, and, and what ended up happening was, is in this country, before America became America, the idea that the white body was the supreme standard on which all bodies' humanity shall be measured was already woven into the very fabric of this society, right? Many of the people who came here from Europe, from Portugal, from France, from England, many of those people did not work, they were illiterate, so they couldn't read. So how did they get, how did they get, I mean, what was the medium or the media that they used to understand what Native, that Native American people or indigenous people were savages? Or that African people were monkeys, right? Or in, in this kind of anti-blackness, how did they get it? Well, they got it through the sermons. The sermon is a medium. That's medium. So when we think about medium, we have to think about it in terms of not just TV, internet, and things like that, but how do people get information about who they are and how, who other people are? And so one of, the, one of the media pieces was the sermon. The other one was newsletters, That's right. right? But not just, the, not just the, and the elites could get the newsletters. But the other media that was used to reinforce that was plays. Yes. So even if you're even if you're illiterate, you can watch a play. Right? And then radio. Right? So all of these pieces were designed to serve white supremacy. And design, and, and, and what I talk about in my book is designed to serve the idea of white body supremacy. Not just white supremacy as an idea, but how the white body was used as, a, as, as the standard of humanness. And then the media was used to reinforce that. Right? And so when we're talking about when we're talking about this idea of media and what the current commission um, um, tried to put out in terms of this is what's going on in these communities. Even in that, even in that, uh, in that report, you still have to understand that, that that report was done at a time, and that report was done as a reaction. That's why it could not sustain. That's why nobody took the stuff out of the report and said, "How do we make this part of the institution now?" That's why it didn't, because it was just about um, uh, uh, about the majority community being uncomfortable not moving towards justice, all right? 
And so one of the things that, um, so I'm gonna just fast forward a little bit and talk a little bit about how um, the idea of ownership is so important. And I think when we talk about ownership in terms of TV and radio and different in, in, in larger institutions, I think what we forget is that if you have black and Latino and brown and red people and women and transgender people owning radio stations, but they have no cultural moorings, you're gonna have the same thing you got right now. Because we have been affected through hierarchy, through, through, through the white being the standard and the black being a deviant from the standard, right? That has also affected us. So what we have to begin to do is, as we begin to create these structures, you have to have organizing ideas that moor you to something. Otherwise, you're running around here like Kanye, right? <laughs> Same things that when you hear it, you hear no moorings. You guys, you guys understand what I mean by moorings? Yes. Nothing plants you. Nothing helps to orient you about your your role in the your role in the world and your people's role in the world, right? It's just an individual understanding an idea, right? But it's not tied to anything. And so when we talk about ownership, we have to talk about morals first, right? What organizes? And so part of what what happened for me is that I wrote a book called My Grandmother's Hands, and and, and what happened was is that I have a good friend of mine and a brother of mine that I love very much. His name is Shaka and Kali. He's in the audience. But one of the things that Shaka did is when I wrote the book, he said to me, um, hey, man, we need to do something with this. And so my understanding is as a writer is you write the book, give it to the publisher, they, they chip you off a little bit, and then you you know, you know go and you hope the book is, is successful so you can keep getting these royalty checks, right? That's my understanding. Shaka comes, Shaka came, comes from the world of organizing. He was like, okay, how do we make this part of community, right? So how do we, how do we take what you have written out of community, right? Because I wrote the book, so let me just take one thing. So in my book, um, the way that I write, the way that I was running around, this is my third book, is that I don't just sit in front of a computer and write, right? Because whenever I do that, I sound, it's horrible, right? It's, the, the way that the book, the way that I write is not the way, the way that the voice is in my head, right? And so what I ended up doing was, with, along with my, um, my manager, um, is that what I do is, is because I'm a therapist and because he's not, he's just a regular person, what we would do is we sit, I sit with him he turns on a digital recorder, and I just talk, and he asks me questions, and we go back and forth, and we argue, and we go through all of these things, right? He, we take that, and then we send it to a transcriptionist. Transcriptionist writes it up, then we edit it. That's how I write my books, right? That's a more of an organic process, so when you read my book, it sounds like I'm talking, right? And so what we did was we took that, and, and with Chaka, what we did was is we started to talk with artists, and we started to talk with musicians, and we started to talk with visual artists about central ideas of the book. And one of the central ideas of the book was that um, uh, was that white 
supremacy and white body supremacy is traumatizing. And that white supremacy and white body supremacy becomes decontextualized. Time decontextualizes white supremacy. So when trauma happens to you, and when you're traumatized, when it happens to you right now, and then tomorrow you're acting funny, people around you will say, remember that thing happened to you yesterday, that's, you might be affected by that. But over time, if you go a year out, two years out, 10 years out, and you're still acting funny, now you begin to internalize that as some defect in you, but not what happened to you. So over 10 years, now it looks like personality, right, in a person. Then if you go out 30 years, now it looks like a family trait in a family. And then if you go out 100 years or 400 years or 500 years, now it looks like culture. But it may have started off as a way that people responded to Trump. Do people follow what I'm saying? And so part of what we did was, is those types of organizing things, we began to talk with artists about it for over a year and do workshops with them and talk to them about it and all these ideas. And then they would come to me and do one-on-ones with me and say, is this why I'm doing this? Because I'm a therapist, right? So we would do this whole thing. And then they went away for a year, year and a half, and they came back and they did an album, right? Based off of the Morgan principles from the book, the album, however, in terms of ownership, I can use it, but the music and the publishing still is owned by the people who wrote it. So we created a different way of doing it, not that they would write an album and then not own everything, but they write an album, they put their hearts into this album, and then they get to actually benefit from that piece. Not, I didn't, we didn't decide that we were going to redo the same system that exists and say, well, you do something for me, I take the music, and you don't have anything to do with it. And so now what we're doing is that the music, the merchandise, the books, all of that stuff keeps feeding itself. So people take different iterations of it. Now, now we go back with something else, and we keep doing it. We did the same thing for the art. The sweatshirt that I have on came from an art, part of an art exhibit that we did based on the book. So when it comes to ownership, it is not just ownership of, of television stations and things like that. It's how do you own something? And how do you own it in the context of community? So by the time you get to a place where you can own a television station, you have the right brain to think about and the right heart and it's set in the body different. Thank you. That's fantastic. And I don't, I don't, I can't speak for everyone, but hopefully I can speak for everyone and saying I can't wait to read my grandmother's hands. Um, as well as Joe mentioned that he is co-author of News for All the People with Juan Gonzalez. So just a wealth of information, you know, a wealth of um, modeling, I think, in what you just said, Resma when we talk about what even is media, mm -hmm. what even is ownership, what is narrative. Um, and so we talked a little bit earlier about the fact that based on everything Brandy shared with us, the, the context of then and now, um, everything that Joe shared, you know, the fact that we are looking to reimagine, mm -hmm. right? But we know that the true kind of goal of reimagining is represented by each and every one of you here in this room, here at this conference. 
Resma just uh, modeled for us, explained for us a very disruptive sort of way that he went about um, publishing, making in the context of community. What are you working on? What have you seen that has worked? So this is what I want to ask you to do. If you can't tell already, I um, am a recovering, reformed church kid. And so one of the things we said a lot in my church was turn to your neighbor. So I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor, <laughs> to your right or your left. It's your choice in front of you or behind you. But find a person near you and say, neighbor. <laughs> no, literally, I want you to say neighbor. <laughs> say neighbor. Neighbor. What has worked well? Mm -hmm. Say that. What has worked well? Now, I'm going to give you five minutes to talk about that, and I want you to talk about either what you've seen that's worked well or what you're doing. For example, we have um, one of my personal favorite legends, Roberta Rael, in the back of the room, who has an organization called Generation Justice, where she teaches young people ages 18 to 29, 30, 13 to 25, how to do media. They have a radio station. They do a weekly show. It's beautiful. What have you seen that has worked well, whether in your community or just in the world, and what are you working on? Turn to your neighbor, let's talk about it for five minutes. Thank you. Okay, so we're not going to play for you the audio of the discussion because, well, it's a little janky. But what's important is for you to know that you're invited to participate right now. Share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Free Press. And be sure to include the hashtag owning our stories. We'll respond. Let's keep dreaming of a better future media together. Thanks for listening to The Connection, a podcast by Free Press and Free Press Action. You can find future episodes on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud via Free Press Action. Free Press is an advocacy group fighting for your rights to connect and communicate. Learn more at freepress.net.